You're listening to Plenary Session. On this episode of Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. Our interview today is with Dr. Joseph Schatzel. He's a new assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. He is a practicing hematologist, and he has a particular interest in mentoring residents and students in conducting clinical research projects, and he's going to share with us his experiences in that topic. But first, I'm going to talk about two papers that appeared very recently in the JCO. One is a randomized phase two trial of cisplatin and etoposide plus or minus viliparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, the ecog Akron 2511 study. I'm going to talk a little bit about how this study, quote, met its pre-specified endpoint, end quote. Next, I'm going to talk about an updated analysis of Keynote 24, which, as some of you know, is Pembro versus platinum-based chemotherapy doublet for advanced non-small cell lung cancer with a high PD-1 tumor proportion score of 50% or greater. This is an interesting study because it's the long-term overall survival update, and they've done a new analysis to help tease out the effect of crossover. And I think the paper is quite interesting because it will allow us to review what exactly is crossover and when should it be used and when perhaps shouldn't it be used and when should you adjust for it in this way. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Okay, first, let's talk about ECOG Akron 2511. This is a randomized phase two trial, okay, that part I like, about... An interesting class of medications, the PARP inhibitor. This is cisplatin and etoposide in combination with viliparib versus placebo in extensive stage small cell lung cancer. I think the listeners of this podcast would know that extensive stage small cell lung cancer carries a limited prognosis. Median overall survival is measured on the order of months, and there are very infrequent cases of patients living longer than five years. So it is definitely a serious challenge we face in oncology and a serious threat to our patients. This is a randomized phase two trial. I like that because I think randomization allows you to ask whether or not there are early and dramatic signals of efficacy, which might encourage you to pursue a phase three study. And so the authors here have done just that by adding viliparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, to cisplatin and etoposide. One of the things they say in their discussion is something that caught my eye because I think it really hits the nail on the head. Quote, there is a valid concern that the combination of a PARP inhibitor and other inhibitors of DNA repair, along with cytotoxic chemotherapy, will result in intolerable toxicity. Indeed, the frequency of hematologic toxicities was higher in patients treated with viliparib, but this did not affect the delivery of standard chemotherapy as planned. So here they raise that concern, which I think is a key, key concern when you talk about extended stage small cell lung cancer, particularly applying the results of any novel drug in the real world. This is a key concern. And here they're quite dismissive of it. Why? Because their own experience suggests that it can be given. uh, And the dose was not compromised so greatly. But remember, of course, this is a phase two clinical trial with all the sorts of implicit and explicit 
inclusion criteria um, that lead to a person going on such a study, it is almost surely the case that the patients enrolling on this clinical study are healthier with fewer comorbidities and able to tolerate more toxicity without dose reduction than patients with extended stage small cell lung cancer that we see in our clinics. And for that reason, I wouldn't be so reassured simply because you could maintain the dose in this group of patients. I think this is quite interesting because this forces us to ask, what do we need from a phase two study before we pursue a drug further? What sort of information do we need to know um, that comes from a phase two study before it's really worth it to go further. So in the introduction, the authors make a very interesting point. They talk about small molecule PARP inhibitors such as viliparib and telazoparib potentiate standard chemotherapy agents in vitro and in vivo small cell lung cancer models. Moreover, telazoparib showed a modest single agent activity in relapse small cell lung cancer in a phase one trial, reference 16. So before we begin, let's pull reference 16. Sometimes it takes a second to find, but I've got it right up here. Johan de Bono and colleagues in cancer discovery. This is a phase one clinical trial of telazoparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, of course. In this phase one clinical trial, in part two of the study, at a dose of one milligram per day, 23 patients with small cell lung cancer were treated. These patients had a median number of prior regimens of one, ranging from zero to two. Two patients had PR, which is approximately 9% objective response rate. And that duration of response lasted 12 and 15 weeks, which is very short. Moreover, for four patients, the authors write, had stable disease lasting at least 16 weeks. They call this the clinical benefit rate. Of course, listeners should know that stable disease, of course, is a category that includes anything that's almost as good as a response, which is minus 30 degrees in terms of tumor dimensions, as well as anything that's almost progression up to 20% above baseline. Uh, so minus 30% all the way to 20%. It's a big category. What is one of the ways in which an early phase clinical trial might have a sizable proportion of patients with stable disease. Well, one way might be if that clinical trial, due to explicit and perhaps even implicit inclusion criteria, select patients with rather indolent biology. In other words, of all the patients with small cell lung cancer, not all of them are able to be enrolled on a phase one clinical trial. Which patients would be? Would it be the ones with rapidly growing, rapidly expansive um, small cell lung cancer that's day-to-day -day compromising their performance status and quality of life? Or perhaps is it the handful of patients who may have some slow-growing small cell cancer that they are able to wait and tolerate all of the paperwork and pre-study examinations that need to be done before they can enroll in a phase one study. Thus, the phase one study has preferentially enrolled people with indolent biology. I think that's quite likely. So when people highlight stable disease in an early phase clinical trial, I to some degree, roll my eyes because I don't think that's a very good marker of whether or not a drug should be pursued. What you really want to see are robust responses to a single agent drug. And here we have an 8% single agent response rate. Now, listeners of this podcast will know that Bishal Gaiwali and I uh, have looked into this issue before, drugs that lack single agent activity. And we have followed these drugs out for many years, and we note there's only a handful of these drugs that actually make it to the U.S. market, typically in combinations with backbones that are active. And these drugs almost universally offer benefits that are even 
less than the average cancer drug. And our average cancer drug comes to market with a median improvement in overall survival on the order of about 2.1 months. And these drugs, it was even lower, something about one to one and a half months. So I think these drugs offer very limited benefits. And if we must prioritize in drug development what drugs to pursue and what drugs are likely not really worth our time to pursue, it would be the ones that lack single agent activity. Be that as it may, without the single agent activity, we launched forward with veliparib in combination with cisplatin and etoposide. And then the next thing that jumps out at me in this paper is that the combination, the addition of an active drug in a tumor that is highly chemosensitive, and that's something I think we'll all agree on, we often get robust responses in this tumor type, this resulted in almost no improvement in objective response. In fact, there was a 71% objective response rate in the combination arm and a 66% in the control arm. That one-sided p-value is 0.29. So they say it is not significantly different. You are not, in combination, somehow magically getting more responses than this drug generated as a single agent, which is few and far between. So this is not a very active drug, and it doesn't really add a whole lot of activity. What it does do is add a bit of toxicity. And what it does do is meet the primary endpoint of this study. Now, what is the primary endpoint of this study? Well, it says right here in the methods section, using an overall one-sided 0.1 level log rank test, this study had an 88% power to detect a 37.5% reduction in the PFS hazard ratio. So in other words, if you're willing to accept a little bit higher alpha than we like to, in this phase two study, you can find a modest improvement in a PFS hazard ratio. Interestingly, although the paper had that power and sought that ratio, the authors fell short of it. The unstratified hazard ratio is 0.75, so they only achieved a 25% reduction in the hazard ratio. And the one-sided p-value was 0.06, which is less than 0.1, which is why they declare success. The PFS difference between these two arms is 6.1 months versus 5.5 months. That's 0.6 month difference in PFS. And the OS has a p-value of 0.17. These curves are largely the same. The median OS is 10 months in one arm and 8.9 months in the other arm. So at most, one month difference in median OS in the backdrop of a noisy measurement. So here's how the authors conclude. Although the initial results of our study is promising, additional confirmation in a larger definitive study is warranted given the mixed results reported by other studies of PARP inhibitors in this patient population. That's where I would disagree with them. I think what you've done here is you have done more than given this drug a fair shot. We have looked at this class of medication for single agent activity. It's been lacking. We have combined this drug with a backbone, and we were not able to generate more responses. The PFS difference here in this phase two study is inconsequential. It is a trivial improvement, less than one month improvement in PFS, which is a surrogate measure. This is a disease that needs drugs that can improve outcomes greatly. Uh, and the only outcome we ought to be looking at here is overall survival for, for the real measure of improvement. This is a drug that will likely have significant toxicity in the real world when you start to expand beyond the carefully selected patients in a clinical trial population. The authors did one thing here that really baffled me. They started to look to see if they could identify a subgroup of patients where there is some benefit. They found that male patients with normal LDH at baseline didn't appear to have much of a benefit. But male patients with abnormal LDH, they had a 1.1 month improvement in PFS. Meanwhile, female patients with normal LDH 
had no real difference. And female patients with abnormal LDH, they had no real difference. So the authors discuss this in the mechanism. There is no biologically rational explanation for the strong effects seen in the subset of male patients with elevated LDH. And that's accurate. Not only is there no rational explanation for that, one wonders why they even looked at it. It clearly is the so-called p-hacking or slicing and dicing your data set until you find something. However, this subset is the largest of the four strata with approximately 60 patients. Therefore, we hypothesize that this cohort probably contained a sufficient proportion of patients with small cell lung cancer who harbored some biologic vulnerability to this therapeutic strategy of PARP inhibition. What I would encourage researchers who wish to pursue the PARP inhibitor in small cell lung cancer, I would encourage them to work on the biology, to try to, at the outset, be able to better articulate which patients they think will really benefit, and to conduct studies just in those focused groups. Simply expanding or repeating this strategy when results are this modest and sobering is a misallocation of resources, and likely, the fact that we are willing to pursue this, be that both cooperative groups and companies, is a downstream effect of one of the problems that we discussed in our Nature Review's clinical oncology paper about low drug approval standards and high drug prices, which create a tremendous reward from clearing the lowest bar. And if you have such a tremendous reward for clearing such a low bar, you will incentivize people to attempt many, 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 many trials with very little clinical promise. And unfortunately, I would put the PARP inhibitor class of medication in small cell lung cancer unselected as one of those things. It ought not be pursued. That doesn't mean there isn't some biologic signature that could better delineate who this ought to be pursued in. But lacking that basic science research being performed, I would not move forward. That's what has to happen next before we conduct any more studies on that topic. That's just my two cents on the topic. All right, now let's shift gears to the updated analysis of Keynote 24. The story of immunotherapy, particularly the anti-PDL1 antibody class of medications, is quite interesting. Very early on, I believe in 2011 and 2012, we had the phase one clinical trials of these antibodies, the BMS compounds that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. These drugs quickly showed activity in some tumor types. Those were non-small cell lung cancer, melanoma, renal cell cancer, in short, the tumors in which these drugs first gained regulatory approval, there was a sign that there was activity in those tumor types in the phase one study. So those were logical things to pursue. Fast forward a few years. In non-small cell lung cancer, by early 2005, we had seen press releases showing that nivolumab beat docetaxel, both in squamous and non-squamous histologies. Nivolumab had shown an overall survival advantage in non-small cell lung cancer in the second line. Those results came out very early on during the accrual of Keno24, which was Pembro versus platinum-based chemotherapy in first line non-small cell lung cancer for patients with a very high pdl one tumor proportion score of 50% or greater. This is just a fraction of patients we see, but these are the patients in whom you'll think immunotherapy will offer the biggest benefit. So they conducted a randomized clinical trial of Pembro versus chemotherapy. They in fact found a PFS benefit. They crossed over some patients on the clinical study and they later went on to find an overall survival benefit. And now we have the updated overall survival results showing 
a clear and convincing benefit to upfront pembrolizumab in this population with very high TPS score. Okay, here's why I want to discuss this paper. I think it's very interesting. The authors write, we report the updated analysis and we're adjusting for the potential bias induced by treatment crossover. Later, they note that they use a rank-preserving structural failure time model, which is a way to ask, what would have happened to the patients in the control arm had they not been allowed to cross over to pembrolizumab? And later, they note that they would have done a little bit worse. They write, quote, we use three statistical methods to adjust for the influence of crossover on OS and the three supported a hazard ratio more strongly favoring the pembrolizumab arm. The two-stage model was preferred as a result of evidence from deviation from the common treatment effect assumed in rank preserve structural failure time model and because the IPCW method is more prone to bias in the presence of relatively small sample size. Okay, that's true. The crossover-adjusted analysis complements the primary efficacy analysis and reinforces the potential to improve outcomes with early use of Pembro. That last statement is a bit nonsensical. It doesn't reinforce what that early is better than delayed. In fact, the way to show that early is better than delayed would be to perform an analysis where you adjust the opposite direction, adjusting crossover from the 65% you achieved it in to a 100% crossover. What is the principle here that we want to flesh out? When you have a novel drug and you do not know if that drug offers a fundamental demonstration of efficacy, you would like to randomize patients to your drug, which you really don't know if it makes people live longer, versus the best available standard of care therapy and show an overall survival result. Now, if you want to do this in a fast and efficient way, you would choose a population that is multiply relapsed or in a latter line of therapy. Why? For the simple reason that the event rate in that population will be higher than people with de novo metastatic or untreated or frontline cancer. You will want to show that Nevo can beat docetaxel in the second line. And in fact, that's what the results show. That came in very quickly. Why? Because they have a higher hazard of death. And if this drug truly does work, it will lower that hazard. We'll see it quite quickly. And we did. Okay, good. In that situation, I contend that you do not want crossover because you really want to know if this drug improves overall survival and crossover could muddy that water. For instance, with vendetinib and medullary thyroid cancer, there were some off-target side effects with that drug. One always wonders if the reason there's no survival benefit in MTC is because perhaps some of the people in the control arm are actually harmed by being crossed over to a drug with Q2C prolongation and other side effects. And there's a nice article about that in JAMA. Okay, now that part we can have a little bit of dispute about. But let's say we have established a drug works in the second line of therapy, which we knew early on in the accrual phase. Now you know that second line, Nevo is superior to docetaxel. You need immunotherapy second line. You're running your frontline study. Now what's the clinical question that faces the doctor? Well, now the clinical question is, is it better to give Pembro upfront in everybody and then give them chemotherapy versus give them chemotherapy upfront, the current standard of care, and then give them nivolumab or immunotherapy in the second line setting. Why are you giving them nivolumab in the second line setting? Because you've already proven in the second line that that is better to the prior standard of care, which was docetaxel. 
In other words, once you have established fundamental efficacy of a drug, typically in a latter line of therapy, and you want to move it upfront, the clinical question is, is routine upfront administration better than giving it on the back end, which, surprise, surprise, is the current standard of care because we literally just established that. In fact, I would argue it would be unethical not to cross over people at that point because you are depriving people in your control arm of the standard of care that you just established in the study you just ran. So when they are publishing the results of Keno 24, the limitation here isn't that they crossed over 65% of patients, it is that they didn't cross over 100% of patients because early on in the study, the standard of care second line treatment in non-small cell lung cancer was pembrolizumab. So they are performing their crossover adjusted analysis in the wrong way, asking the question, how would Pembro have done if we lived in the island of Dr. Moreau and deprived patients in the control arm of a well-accepted standard of care that emerged very early on in this clinical trial? It is a bogus and non sequitur question. They should be asking it the other way around. And I actually suspect, of course, Pembro upfront would still have a survival advantage if they asked it the other way around. I'm not disputing this drug. I think this drug has a use. This is the use for the drug upfront early on, this population, indisputable. Um, but I do think that their entire way of thinking in this paper is backwards and reveals, I believe, some fundamental misconceptions about crossover in clinical trials. Now, if you're interested in this topic, when is crossover desirable in cancer clinical trials and when is it problematic? I would encourage you to read an Annals of Oncology editorial that's entitled, When is Crossover Desirable in Cancer Clinical Trials and When is it Problematic? It was written by Allison Haslam, who is my postdoc, now staff scientist, and me. And it's published in the Annals of Oncology. And we have a table where we take you through two different classes of situations. Situations where crossover is desirable and situations where it's problematic. I'll give you another example of problematic in a second. When it's desirable, we give you examples where it occurred. And, oh, this was the example of when it occurred. Okay, good. Um, and we also give you examples of when it did not occur, that it ought to have occurred. This is the latitude study. The latitude study tries to move up antiandrogen therapy, abiraterone, in prostate cancer, but patients on the control arm did not have a path to it in the latter line of therapy, which was the United States standard of care. And therefore, there's a letter to the editor uh, that really raises this point. And the question is, is the routine early administration truly preferable to the current standard of care, which is giving it later? We also talk about situations where we simply don't know the rate of crossover and why that might be problematic. Okay, let me give you a clear example of where crossover is problematic and it occurred. This is Cipolucil T. This is Provenge Dendrion. It was alluded to by Tom Baer, and I mentioned I didn't like this trial. I don't like this trial because cancer therapeutic vaccines have probably the lowest pretest probability of actually improving outcomes for cancer patients of any class of medication ever conceived in cancer medicine because we've had many, many clinical trials. We've had nothing but failure, nonstop failure, and one drug squeaked through, which was Provenge. And it really has poor market uptake because I think some people have the same concerns I do. In this randomized clinical trial of patients with low volume metastatic asymptomatic prostate cancer, patients all undergo phoresis and they have this vaccine manufactured and perhaps there's some harm of actually phoresing some people in the control arm, but either way, that'll be in both arms of the study. Then one group gets the vaccine administered right away, the other group gets placebo. When the other group has progressive disease, they get the frozen salvage product that they had made administered. When the group that got the vaccine upfront has progression, they get the standard of care, life-saving therapy, docetaxel, which is already proven in OS benefit. Okay, 
This trial, by having crossover, introduced a bias in docetaxel. Fewer patients on the control arm ultimately received docetaxel, and those that did receive it received it after a delay. And these are both in the original trial publication. And then look at the results of the clinical study. Is there a response rate to the drug? Nope. Is there a change in PFS? Nope. Is there an improvement in OS? Yes, of a few months. But is that improvement in OS from Cipollucil T due to the fact the vaccine improved survival? Or is it due to the fact that people in the control arm, fewer of them got docetaxel and they got it after a delay, and more people in the vaccine arm got docetaxel and they got it earlier? In other words, is the only difference in the trial driven by an imbalance in subsequent therapy? By having crossover, you've introduced an imbalance in an already efficacious therapy, and that's why crossover was problematic in that situation, it occurred, and that overall situation is undesirable as we describe in this table. In short, Crossover is something that is absolutely necessary in certain circumstances in oncology clinical trials, and it's absolutely lamentable in others. And you need to know what is the question being tested and which direction do you want crossover to go? And did it occur the way you wanted it to occur? That's representative of your practice. And if it didn't occur the way you wanted it to occur, that is problematic. And the only thing that makes me worried here is that these authors are adjusting in the wrong direction, suggesting that they perhaps do not truly understand these principles and may benefit from reading our article. All right, so those are my thoughts on the updated analysis and the other JCO paper. And without any further ado, let's talk to Dr. Joseph Schatzel. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Joseph Schatzel. Joseph Schatzel is an assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. He is a practicing hematologist. He has a secondary appointment in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Schatzel has an illustrious medical career. He did his medical school at uh, the University of Buffalo. He went on to do residency at Dartmouth. And then he came to us as a fellow in uh, 2015, was it, Dr. Schatzel, you came here as a fellow? I believe that's correct, yes. My first year on faculty here. And that's so right. Dr. Schatzel was a fellow here in hematology oncology. Uh, he served in that capacity for two years when he was promoted to chief fellow. And he was our chief fellow for the last year, and then he stayed on as faculty here at OHSU. Dr. Schatzel, it's a pleasure to have you here on Plenary Session. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Vinay. Dr. Schatzel, I had a few topics I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. Shoot. The first topic, mentorship. Dr. Schatzel, you have uh, had, uh, you're very early in your career, but despite that fact, you've had quite a lengthy list of trainees, people with whom you've worked very closely, with whom you've guided um, through a number of different projects. And um, if you might help me a little bit, how many would you say you've worked with um, just in your time at OHSU? How many trainees? Ooh. Um, I think if you count medical students and residents, um, is it probably, close to 20? Yeah, it's probably about 20 I've published papers with. 20 you've published papers with. Yeah. And um, and about how many abstracts have you put out uh, working yeah. with these these students and residents? Uh, I mean, if you get a student involved in a project, it'd be ideal to have them present an abstract. That whole experience of going to the conference, kind of seeing what that's like, seeing what the ebb and flow of what we do once a year is like is useful. So I try and 
every year take a few trainees to the major conferences. Um, this year we took uh, one to Ash. That's wonderful. And yeah. I guess I'm trying to let the listener kind of get a sense of just how prolific you are. Um, my estimation is, and tell me if I'm way off base, but maybe in the last three years you've put out 50 or 60 abstracts and maybe 10 to 20 papers. Is that, uh, is that about right? I would say that my average for papers is about one a month. Okay. So And always with a trainee. Yeah, it's been a long time since I published a paper without one. <laughs> okay. And, uh, um, and, and, uh, and uh, abstracts? Abstracts, mm, maybe t- it's hard to say. Uh, at least double that probably because we end up submitting a few. Uh, ideally, each project abstract would also be presented. I yeah. see. And then let me give listeners a little bit more background about the kinds of projects you mentor um, trainees on. Your interest is in, uh, a little bit laboratory medicine, and that's growing in your role through BME. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but primarily, you're a clinician, you're a hematologist, you're someone out there who uh, spends a lot of time on the wards. You think a lot about um, the kinds of clinical situations you encounter. You have a patient on, say, ecolizumab. Uh, when might we consider discontinuing this? And that leads you to do either a review article, a retrospective chart review, a meta-analysis mm-hmm. of available evidence. Uh, you're um, kind of a clinical researcher, uh, health services researcher, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think, you know, when I'm on service, as a, I do general hematology. So everything from blood clots to TTP to platelets of 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about every day I encounter a clinical question of which we currently have no answer just because of like the the breadth of my field and the fact that these questions are not really routinely tested in clinical trials. In part because they're probably not as lucrative as some of the things that do get tested repeatedly in clinical Uh, trials. They're just probably true. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at management of things that are really common like cirrhosis, you know, they they develop really fascinating coagulopathy and thrombocytopenia, but there is very little data about appropriate management of some of those issues. Um, but I bet if somebody yeah. devised a $15,000 a month oral pill that every cirrhotic would take, and the end point of a randomized <laughs> control trial could be um, that uh, thromboelastogram, uh, that would be the end point, the surrogate end point. Then I bet suddenly there'd be randomized trials in the space. Would you agree, perhaps? Uh, that's probably true, and I would think, um, you know, we see uh, a parallel to what you just described in uh, the recent FDA approvals of thrombopoietin. There was two basically kind of identical um, interventions, uh, very similar identical trials, and they actually mirrored a trial that a previous TPO mimetic had done uh, a couple of years prior. What are these drugs? Loose thrombopag and... Uh, uh, Avatrombopag. Avatrombopag. And yeah. they mirrored what L-trombopag failed at. That's right. L-trombopag, um, they uh, ran their trial, and the mistake they probably made is not getting a really good baseline understanding of who had clots in their portal vein. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it looked like they had a signal for increased portal vein clots. But when these... Uh, kind of, these are, to be honest, kind of Me Too drugs. When they ran their um, trials, they were aware of this, and I think they... They, uh, they kind of yeah. cleverly dodged that bullet. Yeah. <laughs> and so just so listeners yeah. know, this is this indication that I think is completely ridiculous, which is that if you give a TPO agonist to somebody who's with cirrhosis whose baseline platelets are less than 50, mm-hmm. and you give them a TPO agonist for, I forget, a week or two, yeah. um, 
and they're about to undergo a procedure for which a proceduralist has arbitrarily and often without evidence set a threshold of platelets of 50 to perform the procedure. Yeah. That's not always based on good data, but let's say that they want to see it over 50. This is somebody in whom getting it over 50 is may not occur naturally. And if you give them a TPO agonist versus placebo, they're more likely to have it over 50 and ergo less likely to require platelet transfusion. Yeah, that's the, I mean, if you, the endpoint was, was very positive. They, this, giving these drugs will raise your platelets. The real clinical Yes, it'll question, raise the number. <laughs> yes. And so you'll need less platelets to get the platelets over 50. Yes. The real question <laughs> is how meaningful yes. that is. So, And there's no bleeding signal in these trials. They don't even, I don't even know if they're reporting whether or not there's an increase in bleeding in the group that didn't get it or not. Uh, that is true. Um, you have to look in the... You know, a lot of this goes into the psychology of medicine and similar things I talked about in that uh, we have these practices that are, at least in hematology, because of an absence of evidence or not evidence-based, but you know, the the dogma is that if your patient needs a, a procedure, their platelets should be 50. Mm -hmm. And um, very minimal evidence to say that that is actually a reasonable goal, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, nevertheless, we do this. and. Um, this, uh, these groups showed that if you give people this intervention, you can, without transfusion, routinely get their platelets to that level. They did show that. But, I mean, does this prevent bleeding? Does this make your procedure go better? Uh, the one thing it did prevent is in the current climate, it did prevent uh, patients from getting a transfusion of another human's blood products. Uh -huh. uh, because Which is something we've done all the time and is relatively safe. Uh. Yeah, but it's uh, relatively safe. It's still a little... It, yeah, there's a risk with any trans blood product, yeah. as always. It, I guess to me, yeah. um, the way I kind of think about it is like, um, if you were going for a roller coaster ride and they have that bar that says you must be this high to, to, to ride the roller coaster, mm -hmm. um, and uh, then somebody put a wooden shoebox underneath and you st stood on the shoebox, suddenly people who were not that height are tall enough to ride the roller coaster, yeah. but whether or not anyone's better off as a result is a big question mark. But Quite we're on true. this tangent. We're yeah. on this tangent, and you know, I I hate the I hate that approval because I think it's it's just um, a classic example of how the regulatory agency has abandoned providing us with information that's relevant to actual decision making. But yeah, it would have been really interesting to show actually if mm -hmm. uh, the efficacy of um, the actual platelet counts in terms of. Uh, bleeding, like if the patients who really couldn't get their platelet count up and still receive the procedure, how well they did. Yeah, it would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, I want to come back to it, but I mm -hmm. wanted to start talking about mentorship and sure. we went off on this tangent, but I know you've done some work on that topic. Yeah. A and I, I want to give listeners another piece of background about you, which is that as a graduating fellow just last year, mm -hmm. uh, I believe you won an award from the Internal Medicine Residency. Um, and what was that award? That was like for best fellow mentor in the university. Is that right? Uh, I don't know if it was that uh, illustrious. I see. I believe it was an award for supporting resident scholarship. Resident scholarship. Which, but uh, there was no yeah. other fellow who won. It was a single award given, yes. That's right. Yeah. So, I think, so I think it's fair to say that you are somebody who has done a lot more um, in the space of mentorship um, than many other people. I would say I mentor aggressively, yes. You mentor aggressively, okay. Yeah, passionately. Passionate, okay. Yeah. Now that's what I want to get to, okay. Yeah. Now, what is your philosophy about mentorship? Uh, I guess 
what do you what do you hope to achieve? Well, yeah, I've been thinking about this because it's the whole thing is a symbiotic process, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been a long time since I, on my own will, sat down by myself and wrote a whole paper on a topic. Um, I've done this, and I mean that's a big task that one undertakes. It's kind of like building a house. Uh, You have to really do a lot of research. You have to get your data. You have to look at it, do this, do that. And I think I realized a long time ago that uh, I couldn't do these things very quickly or easily myself and that there was a social pressure in me when I work with a group to get things done better. I've noticed this in the gym too. If you go to the gym, and you have your peers with you, and uh, you just lift weights better. You lift you lift weights more aggressively. I see. Yeah. So the analogy yeah. I think you're painting is an analogy <sighs> that, and you're a very noisy coffee drinker. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to keep that in. I'm not going to delete that. <laughs> I don't know how many of these coffee sips I can remove. But it's really good coffee. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can tell. That is nothing like a Keurig. Yeah. And by the way, Keurig, proud sponsors of Plan. No, <laughs> they, they have nothing to do. I with just got one at home, and uh, <laughs> and you love it. You love Keurig. Well, my Starbucks budget you is drink- cutting down. <laughs> I see. I see. That's the kind of thing I listen yeah. to podcasts, and they say, "Do you drink coffee? Well, you would enjoy Keurig. If you yeah. like coffee, you like Keurig." But no. this is the first, the first part, first, first piece that I've noticed about myself is uh, when I engage a project in a community, I am have much more energy. I'm more likely to get it done. Um, I see you so yeah. far are talking about like all of the things mentorship provides to you. Yeah, yeah I'm um, getting there. Uh, you're, get, you're getting <laughs> to the part where what it provides to the other person. But I guess what I want to say is I like your house analogy yeah. because I think a lot of research is like building a house. And like building a house, every once in a while, you will find one person who is foolish enough to build a house all by themselves. Um, and uh, I, I guess the uh, neurosurgeon Henry Marsh talks about it a bit in his second memoir, but because hmm. uh, he's, he's such a foolish person. But if you're a wise person, you build a house with other people because many hands make for light work and the work goes a lot easier. And you're talking about this other thing about research that I think you, you're putting very well, that few people articulate well, which is we, even those of us who care deeply about these topics, we lose interest ourselves. Yeah. Unless you see someone on a daily basis who just keeps bringing that issue up and you're talking about it and that energizes you to do that research. Yeah, you need this kind of human energy around the project. Uh, and I think that I realized kind of that about myself. And I guess the second piece is when I was a resident and I was sort of learning how to do all this, mm-hmm. Like the first time you build a house, like the first time you write a paper, you write a cover letter and you submit it and uh, you get your reviews back and you address the reviews. Just the the ebb and flow of how that's done. And um, It's so easy to put that on the back shelf and just not do it. Yeah. And yeah. if you have people with your meeting with, I'm going to come back to that. Okay, now tell me a little bit about what do you think the people, the, the residents and students who work with you, what do they gain out of working with you? Yeah, well, I think... Sort of after I finished residency and I had kind of learned that process, um, I realized that, I mean, this is a, they call this like the burden of knowledge in writing, but uh, we actually sometimes don't realize that other people don't know the things we know. But I realized that uh, the other residents I was working under didn't know this stuff. So I kind of got in the habit of just 
sitting down with them, saying this is how you write a paper, this is you know how we'll submit it, let's meet maybe every two weeks. I find that like a reasonable like amount of time for a, re- a house staff mm-hmm. who's pretty busy to mm-hmm. to meet and do like a digestible amount of a project. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to let it go too long because you don't want it them to That's forget. That's true. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Then, so you want to set then some. Then you lose steam. Okay. Two, two weeks. Okay. All right. Okay. Then I began to realize that I was teaching these people how to do the stuff I had learned. And when you take the first people I taught through this and I saw them build these resumes and kind of come, I don't know, come full circle on it and get into fellowship, like good fellowships because they had done, they put in their time and I think people were interested in the work that they had done with us. Um, That was very rewarding. And I think would it be yeah. fair if I if I said that um, this year in particular, but many years in general, we've had phenomenal matches in hematology oncology among the internal medicine residents, and in part, I have suspected, and you know I've articulated this in some of our our discussions. Yeah. I've I've articulated that in part I put some credit with you, and that's because by working with you, um, many of these trainees have I I would say just stellar CVs. Um, for the things in which program directors, fellowship program directors, like to look for, right? They have that that CV. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, as a chief fellow and now as a faculty, I mean, we like all kinds of trainees, and there are trainees who um, certainly come in and do a lot of research. There are trainees who become really powerful clinicians who I think go out and do like a lot of good in the world uh, in a direct patient level as opposed to like a, mm-hmm. like a population level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that no matter what you're going to be, if you come in with these skills, knowing that this is, you know, this is how science is kind of done, clinical science, and these are the, how to ask a question and how to approach it and how to kind of thoughtfully try and answer it with the information we have. These are our great skills, and I always... I'm pleased when the fellows come in really uh, hitting the ground running with these ideas. So, yeah, I think if I can teach that to people uh, in their training, and hopefully, I mean, in the best world, they would kind of carry on what I did and try and teach other people, uh, I think it would be fruitful, yeah. Well, that's well said. So I guess what I'm gathering from this discussion is, and you tell me if this is fair to say, on on your side, you benefit by the energy, um, by the fact that they're helping you with projects that you otherwise might not be able to complete on your own. Um, and, and actually this burden of knowledge thing probably cuts both ways because mm-hmm. you have the burden of knowledge, so in order to make your papers a little bit better, um, somebody is reading it without that burden. It's quite true. And yeah. uh, they can add that clarification. And just the listeners get a sense of this. What does a burden of knowledge mean? This is like a classic, I think, um, problem with people who are too deep into a field when they write for broader groups of people, which is that they forget that the other people out there, they don't know all the lingo, they don't know all these concepts, they don't know all the prior dialogue, and so they start writing about it as if you knew all that stuff and you're reading it and you're totally lost. But every once in a while, if you have a good reader who doesn't have that, they can say, look, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And then you say, oh, didn't you know this history? Didn't you know this? Didn't you know this? And they say, no, I didn't know that. We should put all that in the paper. So that explains to other people. So Right, so that's how it helps there. On the flip side, you're saying, so what is the, the, the residents and students gain out of it? Um, they're gaining, 
you articulate the skill set of being critical about mm-hmm. research appraisal and how to think about how it's done. Um, they're also gaining um, just the simple fact that this does boost their CV, which is helpful. And although I think you're right to say that here at OHSU, we are more holistic, and I think we had Seema Desai talk about that on a podcast, mm-hmm. um, and Jeremy talked about that in episode two, I think. Um, there are a lot of places out there, you and I both know, they really like one type of candidate, which is the future clinical trialist and or lab person. They are, they they unfortunately uh, do not like training community doctors. Um, uh, yeah, there's some truth to that. I mean, um, <laughs> I think I hold a more holistic approach because I think... Um, Sort of the mission, at least OHSU, or I'd say we're the only, uh, we're basically the the major academic center in Oregon where we see a lot of rural patients. Is part of it is to train community doctors for sure. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that to be true, and I believe that some of these other universities could probably do better if they embrace yeah. that a little bit more. But I think these skills are very useful to a community doctor. I mean, what you're really teaching people are. If you really want to practice evidence-based medicine, the amount of questions you have, we're going to far outweigh the amount of evidence we have. Mm -hmm. So you need to kind of learn how to address these or how other people have addressed them, the flaws in that. Certainly there's a lot of flaws in some of the research we do because of the absence of resources to do, like, dedicated trials in these things. So Mm -hmm. I think if if people come in with that skill set, It'll make them sharper doctor no matter what. Now let me ask, push yeah. you on this a little bit. Um, some people believe that doing any type of research develops that skill set. Uh-huh. Um, but you do a particular type of research. And I'm wondering if you feel like it's any research that does it or just your particular type of research. Because as you know, the types of research out there would be like somebody could pipette for like months, months and months and months, and maybe read like a few papers in the lab, you know? But what you're doing, your research primarily is centering around clinical questions and answering those clinical questions with retrospective EMR data, with the National Health, what is that, the the NIS sample, National Inpatient Sample. National Inpatient Sample. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the kind of research you do. And the reason why your research, I think, in particular is so helpful for a practicing doctor is because someday down the road when they pick up a paper to guide them, it will use a similar methodology to the methodology that you're working on. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would say so. I think there's a plethora of the kind of research we do. I think if you're going to do something with a trainee and um, part of your goal is to use this as to teach them, it has to be achievable. So I don't think residents are running clinical trials or, um, to be honest, residents who are not on a research track are not doing much pipetting. What you can do is you can take observational data, whether it's in our own medical record or from databases, and and you know evaluate that and publish that. And that's very that's achievable. I think it's important to have something that someone can complete, because if you don't take them all the way through the process, they they get stuck. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So I think yeah. I think um, you know what you're talking about in terms of like what you think of a good mentorship is. Um, you're meeting frequently with trainees. You think that's vital. Yeah. Um, you are um, uh, picking projects that are doable. For that sure. You, that yeah. they'll, they'll wrap this up in the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, three, you you are utilizing the, di- the, th- the things you have at hand, which which honestly are not that much because you're not, you don't no. have a huge grant budget. You don't have a lot of resources, but you're utilizing what you have. We have a shoestring budget. Shoestring budget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have a shoestring budget. Um, and, and then the fourth, 
I think is the key. You're picking questions that actually clinicians think about. Yeah, that's an interesting thing I've found about myself, and I've seen it in other people. Um, there's one I would call my one of my closest trainees who I brought up from a resident. Now he'll he may be on par to be our new chief fellow. Uh, you can get really absorbed and focused on a question if you're really into it, and it's hard to always enter that state of flow. But I have entered it. Um, I mean, and you see that this is something in human nature. Like if you see people on Reddit, they're like obsessed with some niche thing and they will write for hours about it every day. Uh, this is just a built into us. And um, I have uh, occasionally just been so fascinated about a topic that I would sit down and write a whole paper in a week. And then you try and replicate that and you just can't. And I've seen it happen to Sven actually. Um, I've seen it happen a few times to other people, and it's interesting. I wish I could teach myself how to enter that kind of state of flow. I've seen you do it too. <laughs> oh, really? You think? Yeah, I guess that's. I think yeah. that's accurate to say that there's some yeah. things that um, strike a chord, and then you, you're kind of obsessed with it and uh, yeah. work on it relentlessly, and then just get it done. Yeah. Um, I, I want you to tell me a little bit more about, like, uh, I mean, I guess I think um, you're. You're very modest on this podcast because I do think there's something you're good at coming up with questions. Can you teach that to people? Oh, I wish. Um, but you agree that there's something to that. that yeah, coming up with a question is a key thing. Yeah, a good question is like a good um, plot of land to build this house on. You just know it when you see it. Sometimes it's right in front of you, and then this patient will just roll into your lap and you're really like, how do I address this problem that you have? And you will realize that this is like a very achievable, important, useful question. And I probably have the tools to at least pick away at it a little. Let me ask you about a recent paper that you you alluded to, Dr. Olson, Sven Olson. You, Dr. Olson, Dr. Delory published in JAMA Oncology. It's a nice little paper. I think it captures many of the things. One, first author, Sven Olson. Mm -hmm. Sven Olson is a uh, fellow here, and um, as you said, um, you kind of uh, brought him up a little bit. He was a resident who worked with you very closely. Um, and you're the last author on this paper. Um, and and Sven is the corresponding author. That's right. Well, uh, I and remember something you told me a long time ago. It's like after you have twenty papers, you don't care as much about being the first author. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I go ahead. Yeah, I try very hard to make the trainee the highlight of what I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly you don't give false authorship if they didn't do. Uh, their chunk of the work, but for the most part, they do actually. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I, I think that, and when I see people like decades older who've published a thousand papers clinging to this authorship like it matters, I'm like, oh my God, what is wrong? Uh, so I, I, you know, yeah. so I agree with everything you I just said. I realized that yeah. when I, I went for some interviews, yeah. um, and uh, people would look at your resume and they're like, oh wow, you published a lot of stuff. But they never actually read anything I published. <laughs> they never like delved into it and asked me a, like a like a question that that displayed that they had read. 
Yeah. Well, I'll be honest with you. I yeah. did. A, you know, I did a lot of interviews for faculty a few years ago, yeah. and I had the exact same experience. It was a, yeah. very few people had read even one article um, that I had written. Um, yeah. And uh, now I think it's a little bit more people know, you know, the yeah, articles yeah. are written. But uh, but I think at the time, I think you're right. Um, okay, so let's talk about the article. Cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor associated thromboembolism. Yes. Uh, there's a class of medications, the cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors. Yes, the CDK inhibitors. CDK inhibitors, palbocyclib, yeah. ribocyclib, abemocyclib. That's them. That's them. And these are drugs that the only FDA-approved indication, to my knowledge, is um, hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, in which they're combined with anti-estrogen therapy, AI. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, they all improve progression-free survival. Mm-hmm. Not a single one of them improves overall survival. Uh, that was true at the time I wrote this paper. I don't know. I, I must admit, I am naive to the new onset data. Well, I, yeah. I, I try to keep yeah. a, I try to keep a finger on the pulse, and I haven't seen it yet. But okay. maybe someday, maybe some year from now, these were a blockbuster medication class. That when they were came out, they were called game changers. And now, several years later, there's still no overall survival data, positive data on any of these. But be that as it may, what did you guys look at here? Uh, well, this was really interesting. Um, we were at a uh, conference. This was an invited journal club in Portland um, with free dinner. and The kind of thing that I would like or not like? Uh, I'm not sure how much you would like it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh-huh. it was a symposium on breast cancer care. And several of the attendings I'm close with here have presented talks. Um, so I went and... Uh, I remember someone flashed this slide on the screen. It was about a bamacyclib, and they said they pointed out there was a very high rate of blood clots, and they discussed a patient they had with a uh, blood clot in the uh, venous system around the brain, the cerebral sinus. Um, which is, you know, I see that because I'm a hematologist, but it's an odd mm-hmm. place to get a blood clot. Mm-hmm. So I was like, huh, I had never heard of this because. There's a lot of literature on thrombosis and cancer. I mean, people have made careers about this. And certain drugs, the, I mean, the real classic one you think about is, is lenalidomide, mm-hmm. uh, certainly increased your risk of blood clots. Mm-hmm. And so this is an example of something that um, Sven and I sort of entered a state of flow in because uh, we got very interested in this idea and we reviewed all the trials and it does kind of look like there's a signal to at least suggest that these drugs do uh, increase your thrombotic rate. It's really pronounced with a bamacyclib, which has a black box warning about... Um, was that black box warning in place um, when you started looking into this? It was, it? actually. Okay. And it's not really... I couldn't find anyone had written about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just sort of a paucity of discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me just tell readers a little bit of the background. So these drugs have gained widespread usage, huge... Um, blockbuster class of medications, um, palbocyclib. I think I discussed it previously on a prior podcast, and I pointed out the fact that this is a drug without single agent activity, um, but because it can come to market based on PFS and 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 gain so much market share uh, that uh, it has actually probably a drug that launched a thousand ships. It's part of the reason why companies I think will be less likely to abandon drugs without single agent activity. Okay, so anyway, so Dr. Schatzel and Dr. Olson and Dr. Delory, they went through uh, Paloma 1, Paloma 2, Paloma 3. Uh, they went through Mona Lisa 2, Monarch 2, and Monarch 3. Mm-hmm. Um, these were trials with uh, 
uh, drug and placebo cohorts. That's right. And here's what you find. Paloma 1, there's a 5% incidence of VTE with the drug, mm-hmm. 0% with placebo. In Paloma 2, there's a 0.9% um, VTE risk, 1%, 1.4% yeah. placebo. It's really interesting because of the initial Paloma um, got Palbo a warning on the label I about did. VTE. Uh-huh. And then it was later repealed after Paloma 2. Okay. And then yeah. Paloma 3, though, there's 2% versus 1, 0%. Yeah. There's, yeah. Okay. Um, Mona Lisa 2, there's a half of 1%, 0.6% versus 0%. Yeah. Ribocyclob seems to have the least. Yeah. But there's only one trial. You only yeah. have one data point. Okay. Um, and Mo- Monarch 2, 5% versus 0.9%. Monarch 3, 4.9% versus 0.6%. Yeah. It's very clear that Obamacyclob, that, that's the trials you just cited. Okay. It really does increase your risk of blood clots. Yeah. <clears throat> I see. So, um, this is what you write in your paper. These findings raise several important questions. First, what are the pathophysiologic characteristics of CDK inhibitor-related thrombosis? Um, can VTE be considered a class effect, or are there unique differences among these drugs? Um, second, how will novel combinations of CDK inhibitors and other commonly used breast cancer drugs affect thrombotic risk? Finally, should oncologists consider VTE history or risk when prescribing these drugs? And one would consider pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis. Okay, these are good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here's a line that caught my attention. Oh, okay. Cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors have earned their roles in the treatment of advanced hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. Oh, I think Sven must have wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> earned its role, Dr. Schatzel, huh? PFS, no OS. It's earning its role? Well... Uh, well, no, I, I'll, I'll let that go. My job is not to determine, you know, the value of the role. I'll just say clearly people have found it has a role. <laughs> yeah. Some, yes. Okay. They're widely used, I'll say. They're widely used. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dr. Schatz, you told mm-hmm. me something uh, on this topic a while back. You said, uh, you know, in the course of your fellowship, I gave you, your, the fellows, your class, uh, many, mm-hmm. many lectures about clinical trials, yeah. about um, ways in which they can be distorted and biased. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, and you learn from those lectures, did you not? That is true. I learned powerful lessons. And and how have you applied the lessons you've learned? Well, it's funny because you know I've started writing my own trials, uh-huh. and you have taught me many many clever ways to sort of build a house in a way that may serve, you know. All kinds of interests. Are you I saying, think, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Are you saying that from these lectures you've learned how poor quality surrogate endpoints can be used as the endpoint of clinical trials, and you have used such endpoints uh, or plan to use them? I would say that I could. Get, I I feel that I would I would have a better portfolio if I wanted to move into industry. No, no <laughs> I, would, I would say that. Um, no, I mean in all honesty, I would say that what you've taught me is the way this is done and a a sense of what people's motivations are when they make these decisions. And I think as I sat down to design my own clinical trial and I look at my shoestring budget, Mm -hmm. I think about ways that I can find an endpoint that's close to meaningful uh, with the reasonable resources I have. Mm-hmm. You have taught me that in an interesting way. Probably a, <laughs> so, ba- a way to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I guess uh, you're taking the tool I've used and you're using it in the uh, the opposite way I would have yeah. wanted. Well, that's okay. But So I think this yeah. is quite interesting. So basically, you went to one lecture. Um, mm-hmm. 
you saw somebody flash this signal up for like one slide. It's one slide, yeah. Um, it's probably a lecture I wouldn't have approved of uh, because of the source of funding, but yeah. <laughs> uh, be that as it may, you saw this slide and um, and you pulled this all together very nicely. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of, I'm suspicious that this, there's some real signal here, I guess is what I want to say. Uh, the data suggests there is. Yeah. Um, at least with abamaciclib for real. And I think the FDA has agreed with that one because it's it's on the label. Yeah. And then I guess the question is, why are you the first people to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting question. I'm surprised that this drugs have been out a long time that no one's really, I couldn't find any other paper mm-hmm. on this topic. And you're not a breast cancer physician putting many, many patients on this who should no. be seeing the signal. No, not at all, actually. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, one might wonder why you are the ones who are the first ones to talk about it, and I will wonder that. All right, so... Dr. Schatzel, those are that's the ground I wanted to cover with you. I oh. wanted to talk to you about mentorship. Um, I think I've gotten a little bit better sense of of what you know how you view it. Mm. You call it symbiosis, and that's really how you view it. Um, well, I think I hope the trainees gain more than I do. Uh, you know, my my ultimate hope one day is that you know if I I don't know fall off a cliff and break both my arms so I can no longer type into Epic <laughs> okay. and uh, I am have to leave medicine that, I don't know, that I touched enough careers that the, those people will go on and make the world better in a way that I couldn't. Um, and that hope gives me some peace that I might be able to do that. And that's yeah. a very, very nice thing to say. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you before mm-hmm. I let you go here mm-hmm. is um, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're mm-hmm. a resident in internal medicine, they're thinking about Hemonc, mm-hmm. um, what would you advise them about should they think about our fellowship? What do you think the strengths and weaknesses of our fellowship are? Oh, that's a good question. Because you did your fellowship here. I did my fellowship here and I chose to stay. Um, I think our fellowship as it's designed now is unique and I think it's getting better every year. Uh, but I think the strengths are in the first year. Um, you have your own panel of patients at the VA. And to be honest, I really learned how to be an oncologist there, managing the back end, dealing with issues that were unexpected, the kind of like uh, secret curriculum that you don't learn when you just shadow physicians and don't hear about those patients again. Um, and I mean, I feel like I left this fellowship being able to manage people really well. I like manage the unexpected. Um, I think we have a great depth of inpatient care. Uh, we have a really robust uh, malignant heme service with all aspects of transplant therapy, including CAR-T. Uh, we have a hematology consult, which I think should be the best since I, I am one of the attendings on it, and a oncology consult and we have our fellows rotate through a variety of outpatient clinics. We have some world experts in a lot of different fields here. So I think that's a clinical piece. And then I think you can really invest a lot of time in research here if that's your passion. Uh, you can get almost 24 months of dedicated research time in your second year. You do have to do some clinics and call, but I think more opportunity than you might get other places. And. Um, if you're interested in hematology, we have a strong track record in bringing people up. <laughs> but I think um, also 
in outcomes research or policy, you you have really been a, a crown jewel here no, on this. Kind well, of. I think you've worked with a lot of fellows, and you have fellows published in major publications, for sure, highly cited. Um, not many places can offer that. I mean, I think that people need to go to a place where they have opportunity and mentorship, and I think we have that in spades for sure. And I think people need to go to a town where they'll be happy. And I think Portland is probably the best place I've ever lived. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy to be happy in Portland. Uh, the weather is nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well said, Dr. Schatzel. And I guess I just wanted to close yeah. by uh, just uh, giving listeners a little bit, I think, of why, um, you know, you're really l- well-liked as a fellow here. and. Um, and why that's the case. And I think um, as I reflect upon it, hmm. I, I guess I would say that I think a lot of people um, admired the amount of time and effort you spend in mentoring um, trainees. And I think that's uh, appreciated both in our division and in the, in the Department of Medicine. Hmm. I think the other thing that, and you know, people who are going into residency, this is kind of something that they could take away from, is one of the things that um, people really liked about working with you is, um, you, anytime anyone asked you to do anything clinically, the answer was always yes, and you're very happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that um, you know that it, it sounds kind of bizarre to say that that I think makes someone more more well liked than anything else that anyone could do in all of their residency or fellowship is just to have that positive attitude and not be put out when someone asks you to do something extra. And hopefully, people didn't ask you to do too many things that are, you know, out, out of, right, uh, burden you by because you, you seemed uh, agreeable. But um, I think that's one of the really things that made a lot of people like you a great deal. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about the psychology of that the other day. I went to, I had a long discussion with my friend Eric Liu, and we talked about, um, you know, in medicine, people commonly use this phrase, white cloud, black cloud. I'm sure you've heard this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's interesting because um, this is not an evidence-based term. If you people actually have studied this, I looked and people have found that uh, the sort of randomness evens out after many years. And on average, the average medical trainee sees the uh, roughly the same amount of people. Um, so you could say that. Oh, so that one person is not, in fact, more likely to get more admissions on average over the course of a People have actually published small papers on this. I looked at it the other day. Okay. So if you assume that everyone sees the same amount of patients, Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that I've always identified as a white cloud, and I wonder if that's just something about me that I like my work, um, I like helping patients, and I found... In the few times you're really burnt out and overwhelmed, definitely happens to all of us. And in the real heat of burnout, the patient stops really being a. It's weird. Your body perceives them more as like an endless supply of tasks. Like it's like that chocolate factory episode of I Love Lucy. They're just like all these tasks are flying out and you can't keep up. If you start to view the patient like that, as just a task and a job and um, something that is overwhelming you, it stops being like fun and you 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 start to you really do start to get burnt out. Um, 
And I've always found that when I, the points in my life when I took on that viewpoint, I didn't, I wasn't happy. And I found that if I approach a really hard task, you know, clinical, anything, with the, the kind of mindset, the frame that I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail this, I'm gonna do great, and I'm glad I have a chance to do this, it never really seems overwhelming. I usually leave it feeling pretty good. And um, I think it takes effort to always keep that mindset. You have to be conscious of it. But if I find when I do it, I'm a lot happier. So um, I guess that try and stay a white cloud, people. I see. So yeah. I guess what you're trying to, arti- I mean, what it sounds like to me you're saying is that um, white cloud, black cloud is more your perception rather than a reality. That's the conclusion that we've come to uh, because if you really believe the data that uh, the average person, if you really believe the data that everyone's experience is roughly the same, mm-hmm. is can, it not just a perception? And can I ask yeah. you one follow-up? In the middle mm-hmm. of you know what you were just saying, you mentioned, you said my friend Eric Liu. That's right. Yeah. And Eric Liu is also someone that you've trained and you've published papers with. That is right. He's a currently a resident. He's about to go to fellowship. He's, uh, he's completed his residency and he has taken a one-year spot um, as an attending. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a, doing a hospitalist year on a, on a transplant service at night. He's a nocturnist covering uh, bone marrow transplant patients, and he has accepted to UCLA for fellowship. And he's yeah. just a fantastic resident. But here's my great. question yeah. for you. Is Eric Liu your trainee? Is he your friend, or is he both? And how do you balance all those? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think... Definitely both. I mean, it would be hard to mentor someone who's also not your friend. Um, And it was interesting because I've gone through this on many levels, right? I was mentoring people when I was a resident, um, med students, and now when I was a fellow mentoring residents. And at that level, when you're both kind of trainees, it's a lot easier to be peers. Um, For the last six months as an attending, there is kind of like a separation where, um, I mean, it's just palpable that people view you a little less as a peer because of your stature. Um, But I would say that, I mean, Eric and I are both attendings now, so it's easy to say that he's a friend. I guess I hope that through this process, at the end of it, everybody who I worked with would call me a friend. I think that's well said, Dr. Schatzel. Well. Joseph Schatzel, you're just starting your career as an attending physician here, but um, you've done a lot of work in your in your brief time here at OHSU. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the plenary session, sharing your thoughts about mentorship and about cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors, which have earned their, excuse me, earned their, what is that? Earned their place? I'm gonna go talk to Sven about this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, Joe. Thanks, man. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs> <laughs>